Well, uh, they say that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Now, I think that's a bit debatable. Um, here are some examples of some blatant hijacks in culture. Now, have you ever bought yourself a pair of these? Mikey's. You get some real good air with those, I've heard. Mikey's, yeah, okay. Or how about this one? You're grilled, man, you're tired in the morning, you need some Sunbucks coffee. I think that's a dragon, I don't know. But you know what, if you really need coffee, you ain't gonna notice. You're gonna walk right in and you're gonna buy it, right? Sunbucks coffee. Now here's my favorite copycat. <laughs> Crust toothpaste. I feel like this is the exact opposite of what we are trying to achieve, right? With our toothpaste. Now, uh, this sense of wanting to, and if you've traveled overseas, you have seen all of those things, haven't you, right? The weird knockoffs, it is odd. But there is this sense of wanting to be like everybody else, to strive after what we think is really cool. I think it's probably part of the human experience from birth to death, from start to finish. But I think it probably, if we're honest, probably peaks in middle school, you'd say there, Valerie, maybe high school, maybe bleeds a little bit into college as we try to figure out who we are and what we're going to be, what we're going to do and what we value. And so we look at the people around us and we're thinking, okay, who seems to be doing it right? Like having some successes? Like even as a mom now, I'm like, who is momming well? I need to copy that person, right? Um, now, the last couple of weeks, Pastor Tommy has been taking you deeper into some of the stories of 1 Samuel. And last week you heard, uh, or maybe two weeks ago, you heard the story of Israel's desire for a king. Do you remember why they wanted a king? So they could be like all the other nations. Now, this is the thing. If you read that text in the voice of a whiny 13-year-old, it really brings out the underlying sense of the text. Like, so Israel, why do you want a king? So we could be like all the other nations. <laughs> like that, right? Have you seen that? Totally, right? Um, and maybe a foot stomp. I think that would be appropriate. Now, the thing is, it is was never God's intention for Israel, for the people of God, to be like all the other nations. They were intended to be a people set apart unto God, a people that reflected God's way in the world, right? Kind of the same call for us. A people that worshiped God, who loved their neighbor and uh, as themselves, who didn't lie and steal and cheat and took, didn't throw their marriage vows around carelessly. A people who didn't forget the poor or the widow or the stranger and welcome the foreigner because they, the people of God, were foreigners themselves, remember? Slaves and then wanderers through the desert for decades. And you see, God didn't want them to be like everybody else. In fact, he wanted them to be so unlike the other nations that the contrast would be shocking. But no, they saw the power and prestige and the leadership and the security of the other nations around them with these violent warrior kings leading their people to bloody victory. And they craved that. They craved that power and that security from that human leader for themselves. How embarrassing when everybody else has got a king but you, right? But the thing is, when you ask to be like all the other nations, you are going to end up with a king like all the other kings. And like Pastor Tommy said last week, King Saul started out obeying God, right? Doing everything God asked of him. He was this amazing guy. But then he kind of went his own way, consumed by this power and position. And he became arrogant and buying into the lie, modeled by all the other cool nations, right? That he was self-sufficient 
and this power and greatness had come from himself. And thus he disobeyed God over and over again, basically declaring himself to be God by his behavior. And so in 1 Samuel 16, you can turn there if you want to. We're going to be floating around in there today. In 1 Samuel 16, what does it say? The text says that, that the spirit of the Lord that had once descended upon Saul left him and instead descended upon David. Now, why was the spirit taken from this tall, brave, handsome Saul and rest upon this small, unimportant little shepherd boy? Remember what the text said? For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the Lord saw in David a heart that desired to be like him, not like the other nations. And so in today's text, it's going to come from 1 Samuel 17. And you almost certainly know it, right? It's the story, that infamous story of David and Goliath, not Gilbert. Thank you very much. A story that has permeated culture, right? So even people who have never cracked open a Bible, they know what you mean when you say, oh, it's like a David and Goliath type thing, right? They know it means big, huge, impossible, strong thing up against a little tiny guy. It's like a lemonade stand versus the entire corporation of country time lemonade, right? Okay. There is no winning. It is the ultimate underdog story. And we love that kind of narrative, don't we? Who doesn't love a good underdog story? I mean, America was founded on an underdog story. Like the raggedy little American revolutionaries with their inferior guns and their raggedy marching lines, and they defeat the mighty empire of Britain. And we're like, yeah, underdogs, right? With their freedom seeds, right? Is that what you called it? With their little freedom seeds. There you go. The ultimate underdog story. And we love it. Or a few years ago, there was a movie that came out called Miracle. Did you guys see it? It was about the 1980s U.S. men's hockey team. Now, I did not know this story because I was not alive then, but I watched the movie, and it was amazing. Like, they were a bunch of, like, nobodies, kind of a ragtag bunch of college hockey players just tossed together to play against the machine that was Russia, right? And it was amazing to watch how they come together with this grit and determination and a wee bit of luck, right? And they defeat the ultimate enemy of Russia. We love underdogs. But here's the thing as we approach this text today with David and Goliath. This is not a story about an underdog. Not really. This is an identity story. This is a story that forces the people of God, both in the scripture and us, to ask the question, who am I? Who am I going to be? Like all the other nations? Or are we going to be the people of God that we've been called to be, who we've been invited to be? So let's read a little bit of this story together. We're going to break it into chunks because it's really long. So let's start at verse 1, going through verse 11. Now the Philistines had gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and it camped between Soko and Ezekah, and Ephesi Damim. Saul and the Israelites gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and formed ranks around the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and a valley was between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was about six cubits in a span. That's just really tall, okay? He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armored with a coat of mail. The weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had greaves of bronze on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, 
and the spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you not come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's a problem, a big problem, as Israel is faced with this major threat. Now the valley they're attempting to defend, so like here's them, here's the other guys, there's this valley in between, is really important not only for their success as a nation, but really as their survival, because there's all kinds of economic considerations, like resources and lands and crops, but also security concerns. Because if they lose this battle, they lose this piece of ground uh, to the Philistines, they're opening their whole area into Jerusalem, into their countryside, to the enemy. It's going to be a real weak spot, and they'll be able to be invaded without any problem, okay? And so the power and the might of the Philistines is weighing heavy upon them, and they are burdened by this idea that this is a battle we cannot lose, we can't bounce back from this one. And the enemy that they're facing is not just any, any, any enemy, it's the Philistines. It's an enemy that they've fought over and over and over again, and they never seem to truly defeat. And so the power and the might, and frankly, just the perception of the Philistines is really embodied in this man, Goliath, this big guy. And so when Israel looked and saw Goliath, they saw the impossible. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, wait a second. Dismayed and greatly afraid? Is this the nation that marched around Jericho a bunch of times and watched the walls crumble? Is this the nation that marched through Canaan with Joshua, defeating enemy after enemy and settling the land? Is this the nation who followed Gideon and conquered an army that was larger than them, 450 soldiers to one. Is this the same army? Is this the same army that under the leadership of Deborah defeated King Jabin and his army? There's these countless stories of victory after victory in the face of impossible odds. And yet here they stand in fear and dismay. Now we need only to look to King Saul to see what gives as his heart represents the state of things for the people of God. Saul, in his hard-heartedness and his rebellion, has become like all the other kings. And when all the other kings look out to see a battle between tiny Israel and the big old Philistines, somebody like Goliath in their corner, fear and dismay is the appropriate response, right? You see, the people of Israel have lost sight not only of their vocation, of who they're supposed to be, but they have lost sight of the one who called them and equipped them in the first place. They have exchanged their unique identity as the people of God to be like just the other nations. Not anymore are they the Nikes, now they're the Mikeys, right? 
They're copying. They're trying to be like all the other nations when in fact they have a sacred vocation that they have rejected. And so the result of trying to be like all the other nations, fear and dismay in the face of giants, frozen in despair, paralyzed by dread, having forgotten who they are and whose they are. And so we want to shake them, right? You ever read these stories about the people of God and they keep making the same dumb mistakes because I never, ever do that. And so I read those stories and I'm like, guys, get it together. And you want to shake it by the shoulders and say, guys, did you forget? Did you forget the path made through the sea? Did you forget how nation after nation fell before you as you entered the promised land? Did you forget Unlikely victory after unlikely victory. Perhaps they remembered the victory, but they had most certainly forgotten the victor, the one who had made the way for them. Perhaps have with their selective memories, they remembered the triumph, but forgot the hand of God that got them there. But make no mistake, it was God, not them. In Deuteronomy, it says, It was not because you were more numerous than all the peoples that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, that God brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so we want to shake them. And yet we would be shaking ourselves, would we not? Because we too forget. We forget God's provision. We forget God's protection. We forget God's way making. And we settle into comfort, into ease, into the all-consuming everyday bits of life like dishes and laundry and jobs stuff. And we forget And the way of all the other nations has an appeal to it, does it not? That self-giving way of God seems to pale in the face of look out for your own narrative. The name of make your name for make a name for yourself narrative. And this it's all about you and your families and your comfort and your perspective. That narrative is really, really appealing compared to this whole give your life away model of Jesus. And ever so subtly, our hearts harden and our ears are dulled to the sound of God's voice. And so, when the giant comes, we have forgotten who we are, whose we are. And we are overcome by fear and dismay because we have no vision for what could be because we've used up all our imagination juices on ourselves like all the other nations. What a dead end. But there is no dead end in scripture, is there? There is always a and yet. And yet we remember that even though the spirit had been taken up from Saul, it wasn't floating around nowhere, the spirit was descended upon David. And God was ready to do a new thing through David. Now David enters the story Again, he's been in the story a few times already, having just been anointed by Samuel in the previous chapter. But nobody really knows who he is. Nobody knows he's been anointed. 
He's just this young shepherd who's obviously too young to serve in the army, and he's excluded from battle. So he's like on the fringe of all the action, serving as like a glorified errand boy for his dad, bringing like food to his brothers who are treating him as real disdain, with real disdain, because they are jealous of him, and they see themselves as the true warriors. But that doesn't stop David from jumping in. In verse 24, it says this, All of the Israelites, when they saw the man David, or saw the man Goliath, fled from him and were very much afraid. And the Israelites said, Have you seen this man who comes up to us? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king will greatly enrich the man who, has come, who comes up, or who kills him, and will give him his daughter and make his family free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. So David walks up. I love this. He's such a scrawny little guy. In my mind, he's scrawny, okay? Uh, He walks up and he sees this monster of a man calling out his God, the God of Israel, shaming not only the people of God, but God's very name with insults and the like. And David is angry. He is like that self, like that righteously indignant angry. Who is this uncircumcised guy? Who is this guy outside the covenant that dares to defy the armies of the living God? Now, key word there, it ain't armies. It's the living God. Because from the look of it, everybody else around that campfire has ceased to believe that there is a living God among them. Like Dagon, the God of the Philistines, some statue tucked away, but not David. Why should this God defamer remain unanswered by the armies of the living God? The God who remembers his people, the God who takes action on behalf of his people. As the prophet Jeremiah would say years years in the future, he says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting king. And David knew that in his heart. And so convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the living God was still present among God's people, David just walks on up to King Saul, which is insane. This little guy with nothing to his name walks up to the king. Now, here's an awkward moment. The anointed one, David, upon whom the spirit rests, confronts Saul, the rejected one, the one from whom the spirit has departed. Now, that's awkward, all right? I don't think Saul knows yet. But David, so full of the spirit, speaks with this empowered courage and audacity. And he totally disregards Saul's remote suggestion that he's, oh, merely a child. And he says, no, you don't understand. There is no merely in God's economy. You see? Because David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and I struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw and strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. So David said, the Lord who saved me, From the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and may God be with you. 
Now you hear these stories about David like going to town on a lion and part of you thinks, really David? That seems a bit much, right? Is that hyperbole? Did that really happen? But what we're hearing here is testimony of God's faithfulness. This is not David bragging and boasting about how awesome he is. This is not even David telling interesting shepherd tales. This is David bearing witness. You got that? This is David calling to mind all the ways in which the Lord has delivered him, has enabled him to conquer the enemy at hand. In Psalm 31, a psalm that David wrote, it says, In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me, incline your ear to me, and rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me, for you are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your namesake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me, for you are my refuge. And into your hand, I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O God, O Lord, faithful God. I imagine David sitting on a hillside, rolling hills behind him with the carcass of a lion or a bear next to him. And he writes these words of deliverance, saying, God, you are the one. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge to me. You are indeed my rock and my deliverer. What I hear in that psalm and what I hear in David's kind of boasting about the lion situation, what I hear is witness, calling to mind and calling attention to God's deliverance in the past and placing one's hope in that very same God today, right? He says, the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from this Philistine. I give witness. What Saul had forgotten, David remembers. It is the Lord alone who delivers. Well, Saul persists in his forgetfulness and his pattern of unfaithfulness, trying to be like all the other nations. Do you remember what he does for David? What does he try to get David to do before he goes out to battle? Load him down with the gear, right? With all the heavy things and the mail and the helmet. And I imagine loading up like Tommy's football helmet on Josephine, right? She can't even give her head up. And Saul has this sense that if you just have the right tools and you have the right accessories, we can guarantee this victory. But no, David, unable to even walk in all of this armor, rejects it. His courage is found not in the right battle equipment, but in the sure knowledge of God's presence and action in his life and in the life of Israel. So David walks forth not with a desire to be like all the other warrior kings, but with the desire to be a shepherd king, with a heart shaped after the heart of God. So David walks forth empowered, not by might, but not by the strength of his hand, but by the presence of the spirit within him. And so David walks forth in the battlefield with what? A sling and five smooth stones. Why they had to be smooth, I don't really know, but that was the deal then. He walks out with this minimal equipment and Goliath sees him and he's both incensed and also kind of amused because there's this little guy in front of him who has no chance, right? And so they start this kind of ancient Near East trash talk, kind of like Muhammad Ali style, right? I'm going to rip your arms off and feed them to the birds. 
that kind of thing. It's this ancient trash talk. And they, you know, Goliath is just dishing it out, saying all these horrible things to David. And David, he does not abide idolaters. And so he says, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. In this very day, the Lord will deliver you in my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of this Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this assembly may know that God does not save by sword or spear, but the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. The Lord will deliver. Why? That all might know there is a God in Israel and he is the living God. And with that bold, prophetic word of witness, this battle begins. And it says the Philistine drew nearer to David. And as he did, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand, remember? So David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grabbed his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him. And then he cut off his head with it. You forget that part, right? The Lord delivers. And all the world is bearing witness to God's power to save. Not just the Philistines are going to bear witness, but who else needs to bear witness? Israel. The people of God. They bear witness once again to God's power to save and deliver. Because they were reminded in this dramatic fashion, they are not called to be like all the other nations. They are called to be God's people alone. And so just as Goliath embodies the evil surrounding Israel, and just as Saul embodies and represents this hard, disobedient heart, David embodies for us this heart that is fixed on God. David demonstrates what a life looks like that is rightly oriented towards God. In such a life, courage replaces fear. Trust replaces dismay. David demonstrates what it looks like to be rightly aligned with God and God's purposes, to own one's identity as a child of God, and to reject that siren call to be like all the other nations. And so, yeah, this is not an underdog story. This isn't even a go-be-like-David story. This is an identity story that asks you and me, who am I going to be? Who are we going to be, church? Are we going to walk this alluring path that calls us to be like all the other nations, living into the lie of self-sufficiency, making disobedience a habit, forgetting God's work in our lives, and oh so casually attributing our victory and success to our own awesomeness and hard work alone? Are we going to let the narrative of culture tell us who we are and how we are to live? 
disregarding God's call to love him first and to love people, to create space for people in our lives, especially the poor and unworthy, the forgotten and the despised. Now that's fine. We can walk that road for a while. We can walk that road reaping the temporary benefits that come with a self-centered life. But the day will come when the giant stands before us, whatever form it might take, and that day will come. And we will be reminded, we will find ourselves full of fear and dismay, having no tools to deliver us, for we will have forgotten our deliverer. Having forgotten that we are the delivered. We have always been the delivered. We will always be the delivered. We are not self-sufficient. We could walk that way for a while, but the giant will come and we will find ourselves ill-equipped to handle it. Or could we instead give up this game of trying to be like everybody else around us, setting our own agenda, and instead live into our true identity as the people of God who are loved and who are called to join in God's work. As we imagined David sitting on those rolling hills surrounded by sheep, singing songs of deliverance to God after some encounter with a wild animal, might we too practice the discipline of remembering? Remembering the, the, the deliverance of God. Might we practice the discipline of praising, offering worship, and might we practice the discipline of fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith? And so we will say with David and the thousands of witnesses that have gone before us, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not let those who wait on you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And instead, make to me known your ways, O God. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. And for you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O God, and of your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Having practiced remembrance and having practiced praise and having immersed ourselves in the stories of God's deliverance, when the giant comes, we will stand ready, not by might, but in full trust of a God who delivers. Amen and amen. Well, we now have the opportunity to receive the sacrament of communion where we will remember and we will celebrate our deliverance from sin and from death through the sacrifice of Jesus and receive once again nourishment for body and soul at the table. And at our church, the table is open to all. If you profess Jesus as Savior, then you are welcome at this table. Remember, there will be stations here, one, two, and three in the back. And so, pastors, if you would come forth as I read this text. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Let us come and remember our deliverance. God, we thank you that you are our deliverer. That no matter how tall the giant is, we are never truly the underdog. When we are walking hand in hand with you, the God of the, li- the living God of the heavenly armies. And so, Lord, we confess to you that there are times when we go our own way. And we try to stand alone and do it ourselves, And we find ourselves overwhelmed by fear and dismay because we are trying to be like all the other nations. When you have, in fact, called us apart unto you to be your people, shaped by the kingdom of God, loving you and loving people. Lord, would you empower us by your spirit, the same spirit that rested upon David. Lord, you have given that spirit even unto us. And so would you empower us to walk forth in courage and in full trust of a God who delivers. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to receive the benediction, this good word today? Beloved Christ Church, may you go forth from this place in full trust that you serve a living God, a God who delivers. May you go in action. Go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen.